This is episode 60 of the Get In My Garden podcast, and this is Aaron Moskowitz. I hope all of you have managed to stay busy and occupied during these pandemic times and are safely engaged in your backyard hobbies. Today we meet Elizabeth Lake, a longtime supporter of the podcast and local beekeeper and pollinator activist. She talks about her adventures in beekeeping, her local activism, and building a community around her interests. Then she gives a breakdown of different types of bees and her learnings about native bees who are most hard to observe and research. Elizabeth shares about the impact of honeybees on native bee habitat and the debates going on about this, the relationship of bees to specific plants, a description of the very different types of bees, and why what affects honeybees doesn't necessarily affect other bees, the current state of research into native bees, and her honest review of the recent The Pollinators feature film. Follow me and my adventures at Get In My Garden on Instagram and sign up for the email list at getinmygarden.com. You were such an amazing supporter of the podcast from an early time uh, when I was still, you know, doing not a great job of producing the episodes, Mm -hmm. but I was in the Facebook groups. I think I met you locally uh, through the Facebook group in Albuquerque for, what was it, the foraging group? Yeah, growing food and foraging around Albuquerque. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and then you've given me a lot of great ideas and help to find interesting people who happen to be all over New Mexico. Yeah, th- th- it was exactly that group because you had posted about the podcast and I thought, oh, how interesting. That's one more way to do what that Facebook group was trying to do and connect people on these on these same topics and connect people to the information. Yeah. So I'm kind of new to New Mexico. I moved here to go back to school and I was at UNM and ran into somebody who had some honeybees just on a table. He had an observation hive. And I thought, well, that's funny. There was no sign or anything. And the sustainability program was starting a beekeeping club. So I joined that. It was right in the heart of the Save the Bees. And that was going on all over Facebook. And I didn't really have any information to figure out what Save the Bees exactly meant. So I joined that group and started beekeeping honeybees. And then from there started learning about everything about bees, uh, and then have branched off and have started doing my own studies while also maintaining honeybees. There are lots of opportunities to get involved in like the garden group, like the one in Facebook then. And that was an area of expertise that I didn't have. And I didn't, it wasn't really even really a hobby. And this way, then that gives me a chance to speak to other people, speak to groups that I wouldn't otherwise meet, and then gain knowledge from them too on how to garden, how to plant native plants, and then that helps uh, my bees. That's awesome. Are you, have you personally kept bees in New Mexico? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Way, way back when, my dad had been a beekeeper as like an employee of a big beekeeper in California, but that was, I was never involved in that. It was just kind of like family lore. I knew about it. And then when I discovered the honeybees here, I got, uh, I went out and caught a swarm that was just loose in someone's tree. They, the, somebody called 311 and needed to be rescued from That's honeybees awesome. that were outside their door. So I, they think I'm a hero and I think I got free bees. So it worked out very well. How do you know if the bees are nice? You don't. There are some downsides to catching swarms and that is one of them. If you purchase bees from somebody who has been like breeding bees in their backyard, 
Then you have some idea that these that they've been purposely breeding their bees to be very sweet. And when you're just out catching a swarm that has swarmed and taken off from someone's yard, you don't know what kind of you don't know if they're sick and you don't know if they're going to be nice. <laughs> gotcha. That's awesome. So what have you learned about bees in New Mexico? I actually just I've said it a few times, I think, in my podcast about this is our state is second only to California. Yeah. In quantity of native bees. Yeah. Diversity. Yeah. So we're so lucky here in New Mexico. Uh, there's a book called The Bees in Your Backyard. And it's not a really good, it's not like a novel. It's not a book you sit down and read. It's a really, really good reference book. And one of the authors is here in New Mexico. So we have this expert right here in our back door, which is fantastic. So I've been able to learn from her, take classes from her and hear her talk and learn about the diversity of bees. When I first got into the honeybees, I did not realize that you know that was not a native bee or that that wasn't the only bee. Um, and I think some of us know that there are honeybees and know that there are bumblebees and don't necessarily know that even those are different bees. And then once you even go to just one talk or read one book, you find out, oh, there's like 4,000 types of bees in the United States and the honeybee wasn't one of them until the Europeans got here. In New Mexico, we have easily 1,000, 1,100 maybe species of bees. California has a little bit more. They have a, a few hundred more. California is really big with a lot of different kinds of ecosystems. So they have some bees that, for instance, only live at the California-Oregon border. That's the extent of where they live. We uh, don't have some of, some of that same uh, ecosystem diversity, but it turns out the desert areas people erroneously believe that desert areas are not diverse they're fantastically diverse and they're uh, diverse for bee species so Arizona likewise has very similar quantity of species of bees to the point where I've heard some people from Arizona claiming that they have the second most diversity but I think gotcha. we do <laughs> here in New Mexico <laughs> but so we've got all of these bees here and most of them are not at all like the honeybee most of them live in the ground so maybe part of why the desert areas are where you see larger diversities is because you've got drier ground. Mm -hmm. So you don't have fungal problems that maybe you would have otherwise. And bees can safely live and put their little eggs down there and their eggs can safely develop over winter down in the soil and then pop up in the spring. And, and that's how most of the native bees live. Makes sense. So how do they uh, research them if they're so hard to find or see? Yeah, that's interesting. I have a friend who is from back home in California who posted a place that I like to hike. He posts videos of native bees there, and I have never in my life growing up there seen a native bee. So I'm trying to get him to take me on a hike of these hikes that I've gone on tons of times, but now I'm going to be looking for bees in the ground because I've never noticed them, and clearly they're there. He posts videos all over YouTube of these amazing, he sets music to it, and you think it's like some wild, amazing place, and it turns out it's just this little trail behind my house that's cool so there is it's really difficult to find bees sometimes because they're they might just have a little hole in the ground and they are solitary it's just going to be like one little mama bee and she's just put her eggs down there there is a, a british researcher who has done um work with bumblebees uh, he runs the bumblebee conservancy and he's done work in australia and 
in one of his books, he discusses grad students are employed to walk around and find bees. So that's how you find them is you gotcha. get an intern. And they have a dog that's trained. And, you know, dogs have this amazing sense of smell. So they've trained the dogs to sniff out bumblebee nests. And the dog does not have a better record than the grad students. Okay, interesting. <laughs> so, um, it, you know, it was, it's expensive to acquire a, a trained dog. And, and it works. The trained dog can find bumblebee nests, but not at some amazing level, more than just one person just walking around, staring at the ground. Okay. And, and knowing what bees look like. And then from there, you can kind of spot them because everything that is flying or that is yellow and black is not a bee. And every bee is not yellow and black. Bees right. are greens and blues and all different other colors. So once you kind of know what you're looking for, and then you immediately start seeing them. Once I started learning about bees, I started seeing bees in my garden. And for instance, now when I go back home and I'm going to go on this hike, I know I'm going to see bees that in my entire life I've never seen before. Do all the different types of bees have a preference for a certain type of plant? Because the more I've been reading about different insects, particularly caterpillars, they have one plant that feeds them. Is that true for bees too? Yes and no. And this is that's an interesting place to point out that um, sometimes honeybee beekeepers and more ecologist type folks disagree on whether or not honeybees are good or bad because honeybees and bumblebees, any, really any of the bees that are more social, but honeybees in particular are generalists. They will go to anything that they can go to. Uh, there are some plants a honeybee can't go to, but anything that a honeybee can go to, it will go to. And a honeybee needs a lot of food because it is not a solitary bee. It lives in a colony of tens of thousands of bees. So it's going to anything, whether or not it's native, whether or not it's a plant that you want in your area. And by them gathering the pollen, they are then also pollinating the plant. So if you have an exotic species that is taking over and your honeybees are continue to pollinate it, that could be a problem for somebody who's trying to do some restoration work or, you know, if there's a fragile environment that the honeybees are in. Most of our actual native bees then are specialists. But okay. specialist means different things in bees. Some of them specialize to a family of flowers and some to a genus. Genus, And I, I don't know if anybody really specializes to a species. Most of them would be like the genus or the family. But that can have a couple that can mean a couple different things the bees who are specialists uh they only have flight time of their life that sort of corresponds with whatever their preferred plant is there is sometimes some ability of the bees to switch over to similar plants maybe within the same genus but if they are totally specialized to a specific genus or species of flower, that is the only flower that they will go to. And then that is a problem if climate change or weeding some or a road goes in and that flower is eliminated. Then that bee, who is that level of specialist, that bee is screwed. And then your more generalist bees are going to be able to possibly switch over to a similar plant or completely like a honeybee can just completely go to a different plant. Interesting. And so how do they do the different bees get along? Are there ever problems there? <laughs> so I, I have seen a 
a video on YouTube recently, which is hilarious or mean, where I, a honeybee just sort of like walks up to a bee on a flower and just takes the pollen right off of her. So rather than doing the gathering of the pollen herself, the honeybee, the bee has already pulled it out of the flower and the honeybee comes along and just takes it off of her and then goes away with it. But that is a very unique video. It, must, it might be a corporate honeybee. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've never seen anything like that in real life. And this video, part of the reason the video is so popular is because it's hilarious and so extreme. Because some of your native bees are specialists, you're not necessarily going to see them always on the same flowers as honeybees. And this is the point I try to make when I debate with people who have a hard line against honeybees and they insist that honeybees are always bad for everywhere. I, th I think that's too extreme. I would love to hear the arguments on that because, I mean, I think that most people who are not that into bees, like you were talking about the bee washing, mm -hmm. there's a lot of that going on. So people just kind of assume that it's, they're so good. Yeah. Yeah. And we didn't talk about that here, but I posted that on Facebook and it's just, it's this greenwashing. And it's this idea that you use that as a marketing ploy, whether or not it's based in any kind of reality and you plop a bee on your label and then you sell your product um, and it the worst case scenario you're actually doing something really detrimental um, for instance I mean this isn't a reality but you know if you slapped a bee on your uh, weed killer and then tried to sell that that would be a real bummer because what some people consider weeds are actually the flowering plants that the native bees want mm -hmm. so Bee washing it could is at the very least meh, not based on science, and it, the worst case could actually be very detrimental to bees. Particularly, probably the native bees who have a yeah focused appetite. You had asked about people who have like this real hardline anti honeybee, and I think that they're wrong. I think that that's too extreme. I recognize the argument that they're making is that a farm animal. So, you know, they would make similar arguments about honeybees as about dairy cows. And, and they're saying that a farm animal is always going to be detrimental to the ecosystem, which oak is fine, I guess, for a theoretical debate. But we need food <laughs> and yeah. we're going to have agriculture in our life. Um, and honeybees are an animal that we use in our agricultural system. And they're an important animal in our agricultural system because of their quantity and because we're able to move them from farm to farm. So we can move them to whatever's in bloom, pollinate that cash crop, and then perpetuate our agricultural system. If you are a person who has serious problems with our agricultural system, then you're not going to be receptive to that argument because you think that is, in fact, the problem. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. There's a recent film uh, that was that had a limited. I think it was one of those like Sundance Film Festival play, uh, films, and then it, I, play, I saw it here in Santa Fe. Different theaters were showing it as like a specialty film called The Pollinators, and I didn't know what to expect because it was called The Pollinators and was clearly about honeybees. So I was worried this was going to be bee washing. This was going to be a movie about honeybees, and people were going to the general public was going to be misled into thinking that the honeybees need to be saved by the general public. I was pleasantly surprised. I am a big fan of the the movie The Pollinators because it took us into what some people are saying are the problem with our agricultural systems. We are taking the honeybees and shipping them around the United States to whatever cash crop is in bloom that 
week or that month. And one of the reasons we have to do that is because we monocrop the hell out of our agricultural system. And you have one crop, so you keep all of your rows very clear and clean so that you have one type of equipment for that one type of crop and you, it's very efficient and that way it can be very inexpensive and you can sell your product. Honeybees have to then be brought in to pollinate because nobody can live in that environment. It's, it's too sterile. There's nothing in bloom the rest of the year. So the pollinators went to some of these commercial beekeepers and they don't love it. That's just the reality. They know that it's not super helpful for their honeybees to be shipped around a country, um, but that's the reality of them being a commercial beekeeper, that they have to make choices, and uh, that is their livelihood. So that's the choice they make. They go out to California and the almonds. The almonds are, are a biggie. That's when the migratory beekeeping season starts. That's about Valentine's Day-ish. And that starts spring, and that starts your route. And you move from the almonds to whatever next cash crop around the United States is in bloom. And they went to farmers in California, in the almond area, and it turns out that not only are the almond growers and the commercial beekeepers not our enemy, but they are receptive to the problem, varying levels of informed of the problem, and really, really interested in the solution. And so they're not against uh, like sort of if the ecologist minded folks are on one side of the spectrum and these commercial farmers monocrop farmers and beekeepers are on the other side of the spectrum it turns out that they're they're really not that different and they have similar goals it's just that they have different timelines to get to those goals maybe mm -hmm. that might be a good way to say it because if you are a commercial farm guy you have to make decisions for when the money is available. You, you don't necessarily have a year-round job because if something's not in bloom, you can't pick it and sell it that month. It's just not available to you. So I was so excited to watch the pollinators. And there were people in there uh, who I didn't know. I, I recognized the beekeepers' names. I didn't know the farmers' names. And I was so excited to see how much work they were doing towards this shared goal of a much more sustainable system so that we can all eat, we can all eat hopefully relatively affordably, and we're not destroying the environment. I don't know if this is something that you've followed a lot of, but I'm, every beekeeper knows about the parasites and the problems there, and I've heard a lot about that. But what about the native bees? Are they prone to different parasites? And how is the environment and how it's changing affecting them? Um, so there's a few answers to that question. There are some well-known pests of the honeybee. And they've gotten, there's been coverage in just sort of a general, like, you know, like an NPR kind of source that will report on it to the general public. And I think that's not good <laughs> because I think that the pests of honeybees are an industry issue. I think that that is an issue to be solved by beekeepers who are maintaining these bees. Like, for instance, I couldn't tell you what diseases affect dairy cows because the dairy, the industry folk are dealing with that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there's confusion then. The most well-known pest of the honeybee and, and seemingly the most problematic is the varroa mite. Right. And, I mean, the general public has heard about that. It's been covered in just kind of regular old papers. And um, it's not something that I would expect sort of like the general public to be able to solve because it's like a flea on your dog. Like you have to go and take care of that pest that's basically like, you know, 
sucking on and spreading diseases to your animal. So the Varroa mite was an animal, was, is a little, little critter that uh, evolved naturally in Asia in the Asian honeybees, who are slightly different than the honeybee we have here, because the honeybee we have here is the European honeybee. Mm-hmm. It's a different species of honeybee. Uh, there's only a handful of bees. Of the 20,000 or so worldwide species of bee, there's like six that, that are honeybees. So we have this European honeybee, and this mite got into the United States in the 1980s. I don't know, 1986, something like that. Um, I don't know if we know exactly the route, but it came in on somebody like smuggling in bees, bringing in bees or something. And this mite has never lived with the European honeybee before, and it just consistently is just attacking the European honeybees. We're doing more and more research and finding out why it's so problematic. And it turns out that it feeds off of what's called the fat body, which is essentially like a bee's liver. It's like their immune system. So you're knocking down the liver, which bees use to uh, break down, you know, like pesticide exposure and stuff. And it's how they protect themselves. And then also the varroa mite is a vector for viruses. So you've got the bee attacking your immune system. You've got the mite attacking your bee's immune system and spreading diseases at the same time. So it's just devastating to Mm -hmm. our honeybees. Some people then have got mixed messages between there is a pest that's really rough on the honeybees and then we're not taking good enough care of our environment to protect the bees that are here natively. And they've sort of mixed those messages up and they say, well, I'm going to save the bees and I'm going to get a colony of honeybees. I'm not going to learn how to be a farmer and a beekeeper, and I'm not going to learn how to do that. I'm going to plop them in my backyard and save the bees. And that just won't work. There's just a confusion over what it means to save the bees, because some people, some of us just weren't told what the bees means. And we still just cling to the honeybee, which is just, which is our, our little farm bee. It's our little agricultural bee. And it makes great news. Yeah. To get everybody panicking about that. Yeah. And because the honeybee is so vital to the way our agriculture system works, uh, there's a lot of research there and there's a lot of money there. And so then that is one of the reasons why it gets news is because when somebody does a study, it's going to be on the honeybee. It's going to be, why is the varroa mite so bad? Uh, How... Are, which pesticide is super duper bad to these bees? Um, how? What's the fatality? Um, how much? How much amount of such and such fertilizer or herbicide can they be directly exposed to before it becomes fatal for a colony of honeybees? And so you, that's that's one of the reasons that it keeps getting reported in the news, is because the economic situation drives that kind of research. There isn't an economic factor to somebody going out finding a little native bee nest you know you have to hire your grad student to go out and spend hours and hours and hours and they may or may not find one that day and then learning everything about that particular bee who maybe we've never studied before and Mm -hmm. so there might be zero base knowledge on that particular bee then getting enough quantity of that particular bee that then you could take it back and then do this kind of straight laboratory experiment where you are exposing that particular bee to something to then say, oh, so many milliliters of this affects that bee. 
but we don't even necessarily know where that bee's nest is yet. So there isn't, that. that is not an agriculturally important bee in the same way. So then you don't have anybody funding that kind of research. So then there's nobody releasing studies on that. So it's not getting picked up by the sort of mainstream general news. Since we kind of get caught up on the honeybee, we thought for a while uh, that the honeybee can at least be the canary in the coal mine. And we're saying, okay, if there's a problem with the honeybee, then we know that there's going to be a problem with the other bees. So, so that way we can justify giving all our, our attention to the honeybee. But that is probably not correct because the honeybee is so different than all of the other thousands of species of bee that it doesn't necessarily follow that something that is affecting the honeybee is also going to affect the native bee or affect in the same way. Bumblebees are probably the most similar to honeybees in that they are somewhat social but to a very different amount. A honeybee colony is tens of thousands of bees with one queen who never leaves. Her job is she goes out and gets mated, and then her job is the mama. All she does is she lays eggs. She doesn't take care of herself. She doesn't feed herself. She does not go out and get pollen. She's fed and cared and tended to, and that is just her job, is to raise all of those, just to give birth to all those tens of thousands of, of little, little baby bees. A bumblebee colony is more like a few hundred individuals. The mama queen is a lone solitary bee when she first comes out in spring and she creates a nest. She gets all her own pollen and nectar. Then she starts laying eggs. And once that first round of worker bees is born in the spring, she then becomes a house bee and just raises babies. And then those daughters are who do all the work. Most of your other species of bees are not social at all and they are strictly solitary. And one mama bee goes out and lays one egg with some pollen and then lays another egg with some pollen and lays some, another egg with some pollen and then she passes away. That's it. That was her life. Amazing. So then those eggs develop into next year's bees. So it doesn't follow necessarily that if a thing is affecting the honeybee, good or even bad, it's not necessarily true that you can guess at all how it is affecting the other species of bees. Unless it's, I mean, I'm going to just go on a limb and say pesticides I think it's probably safe to say that, you know, if you're poisoning the environment and it harms honeybees, it's probably also harming all of the other bees. But it's just that that sort of scientific proof of such and such affects a honeybee this way, therefore. That's a good just point. Does, just doesn't exist. There is funding for honeybees uh, because of their, their economic value in the food system. I think that your honeybee beekeepers and your honeybee researchers can be allies because they're going to accidentally also <laughs> discover whether there are other bees visiting this plant or if there are other bees nearby or if there are other bees when they started their bee farm and now those other bees don't exist anymore. So there's going to be ways to capture data if you aren't afraid to ask the people that we think we're working against, you know, if we think that the farmers are working against what we are trying to do, then we'll never be able to have those conversations and we will miss information. If there is a correlation between honey beekeeping and native populations of bees, what are some mm -hmm. things that you hypothesize would be contributing to their decline specifically? Okay, so here's where I break apart from a few people because I won't make the statement that I think that having honeybees, 
like is detrimental. Okay. I, 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 so I break from some like entomologists and ecologists who are more comfortable making that kind of statement. And I find that even to be too extreme. There's a real mix of data. And one reason might be because of just who is going to go out and do these kind of native bee studies and surveys. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up and first start with, we have huge gaps of knowledge of who the native bees even are, where they are, how many of them there are. We have kind of guesstimates at, at this whole, you know, New Mexico is wildly diverse. And we have at least a thousand species of bees. And that's a, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty educated guess, but it's based on partial data. And, and we all know that. We are lucky in New Mexico, we actually have good data because in the late 1800s, which is around the time that the honeybees were getting to New Mexico, there was actually a biologist who happened to do a really nice insect and bee survey. And we've got some early 1900s data from Arizona looking at sunflowers and, and surveying every single bee that visited sunflowers in the American Southwest. We aren't completely blind. We just know that there are gaps in our knowledge. So if you don't even have a baseline to compare it to, if you go out tomorrow and you find that there are 10 different bees in your garden, what does that mean? Did there used to be 300 and there's right. only 10? Or did there used to only be eight and, and now we have 10? So the information we have still just keeps being just a photograph, just a moment. Somebody is able to get a grant, they're finishing their PhD, and they're able to go survey one area. Because it would be very difficult to prove that if you don't have underlying data to show that there were a gazillion different bees, and then we put a honey beehive, and then now there's only, you know, half of that. There is some information, there are, there are some, some surveys and some research that does show some of the detrimental effects if you flood an area with honeybees, because you've got this honeybee who lives in a colony of tens of thousands of individuals and needs a lot of pollen and nectar to be brought back to her home to feed all of her sisters and her mother and, and her handful of brothers that live in the colony. Mm -hmm. So if you saturate an area with this animal, it's going to be difficult to provide enough forage for them. And you might make a choice, for instance, to plant one particular crop because you want that crop maybe for the honey or maybe just because it's highly productive and you know your honeybees will have enough food. Well, we already know from all of from earlier in the discussion that the diversity is so important because some of the specialist bees that are here natively maybe can't go to that plant or maybe you've disturbed their nests in the ground to plant. And so for sure, and I'm very comfortable saying that you could oversaturate an area with your honeybee or with any kind of farming choice like that, and then have a negative effect on your native bees. Now, the Xerces Society has really towed the line. They have, a, they have a article on what should land managers do about these honeybees? Should you allow honeybees? Should you say, no, they're not supposed to be here in the United States and we won't allow them? They have done a real thorough job of looking at all of the competing research and said all the things that I just said that, uh, you know, there's not a lot of base knowledge and there are some surveys that show some negative effects, but then there are some, some surveys that really didn't show a negative effect. And here at UNM, one of our recent PhD candidates was studying bees. And unfortunately, her work is not published yet, uh, but she did present it to the Entomology Society. She went into an area of the New Mexico desert and surveyed it and, and didn't find any honeybees present. It's, it's way out, you know, kind of away from the cities. And she got then a baseline of what kind of bees were visiting the plants, plopped in a honeybee hive, and then again, resurveyed the area. 
And what she found was that nature rose to the occasion. When she introduced the honeybees, the plants then had more plant set, they had more flower set. And with the more flowers then available, you then had sufficient flower life and sufficient pollen and nectar to then support both that honeybee hive that you introduced and the bees that were there prior to the honeybees. You know, on the more hopeful side, it means that we can find ways to sustainably farm and we can sustainably keep bees if we keep in mind that we should not be saturated in our area and that our honeybees are an animal that came over with the Europeans and we need to respect that if there is research that shows that there's a detriment, that we immediately take steps as beekeepers to address that and to minimize any negative effects that we may cause in the area. There's a couple of specific things I do know about plants. I'm not a plant person, but there's a couple of specific things I know. Some of the uh, plants, some of those flowers that have been bred to be showy, so they have extra blooms, more petals, and they're very, very, very pretty. In order to breed that, it bred out the pollen content. And so the plant now has to use all of its energy to make all of those additional petals. So when you've got those sort of double extra bloom, those very, very, very pretty ones, if you want those, that's fine. But uh, recognize that they are not a part of a habitat. They provide zero food. You know, if you're going to create habitat, then what you want to be doing is going to native plant societies to learn about your native plants and native plant local nurseries and getting those plants that have, the, that have not been bred for those showy qualities because that showy quality is at the cost of what you actually want to be providing to the critters around you. That's a great message. Yeah. So be careful when you're buying ornamentals because the couple of things that they have is that they've been bred to be super pretty to the human eye, but then at the cost of what is attractive to the bugs. And then also you don't want bugs eating your ornamentals. So those are going to be the more likely to be the ones that are treated like with neonics. Um, and that's a that's a new class, newer class of insecticides, which is all over the news right now because it was sold as being much safer for mammals. So it was a new generation of, of uh, pesticide. And then we're finding out, oh, it's quite a bit more detrimental than we wanted. And then anytime you're using a broad spectrum, any of the sides, it doesn't know which bugs you want to keep and which you want to get rid of. It's just going to be getting rid of bugs. So if you're putting out all these very pretty showy flowers that you're trying to keep the bugs off of, that is not habitat. And, and those two uh, goals are opposed to one another. Recently, I've heard a lot about the different plants, you know, the plant-insect interactions. But I think the other side of that, too, which I haven't gone into that much, and I'm probably going to get a soil scientist to Mm. try to get these answers, like how also would these non-native plants be affecting the soil food web? So instead of, like, going in the other direction, the things that we can't see, you know, the fungus, the uh, microbes, and, like, they're probably very much affected, too. Yeah. The last thing that... I would add is that if you are interested at all in, you know, this, the save the bees idea, and you've decided that you don't want to be a beekeeper, that you don't want to do that, that farming side of it, but you want to figure out, you know, how can you be involved? How can you be a part of the solution, not accidentally a part of another one of the problems? The other things that you can do beyond just your own backyard are get involved and support open space policies. We're so lucky here in Albuquerque that we have um, a wonderful open space part of our parks and rec. It's not just assumed that you'll go to a green manicured lawn to go have your fun. You'll go out to a natural open space and that that is part of uh, what we provide for recreation for folks. And I think that that's wonderful. Get on the board 
Nice. Attend city council meetings and be involved in the decisions about having open space, how we weed our parks, whether we're using herbicides at our parks, whether we're allowing clover. A trend in, in landscape architecture prior to the you know the, the most recent few years, you would probably not plant clover at a soccer field because you didn't want bees, because a city or a school would be worried about the liability if there was a sting. Well, if you are wanting to make sure that we have habitat, then you're wanting to promote clover. So be involved in the city council meetings and, and voice your support for the people who are making those kind of decisions. Beyond your own backyard, you can make choices in your yard, you can make choices about how you eat, and you can make choices uh, that affect your city and your county and your state. And, and that would be the, the, what I would want to add to how you can be involved and what you can do to help. I think those are great ideas. Thank you so much. I'm really excited about all this information you've shared. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. It feels like we are suddenly in a new world with the current pandemic. My priorities around the podcast have had to be adjusted, but I promise more content and maybe a more focused genre-specific spinoff in the near future. Feel free to drop me a line in a message on Instagram at GetInMyGarden or on the website GetInMyGarden.com. Be safe and be entertained. <laughs>